You're listening to Rosie Cole's Vaudeville Broadcast. This program may contain adult content, so if you're under 18, please either get permission or switch it off. Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome to another episode of the broadcast. Um, today's episode is super exciting. I have the phenomenal Kiki Lovechild with me. Hello. Hello. Oh my God, you have a voice. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> People who've seen you on stage uh, probably don't realise that, maybe, unless uh, they talk to you afterwards. No, I've spoken on stage once in the last, I think, nine years. Was it at gunpoint? Did someone force you to? Uh, no, but it was a dusty Hetzburn. I can't say no to her. Uh, <laughs> asked me to asked me to do a, a spoken routine with her, so... Oh, wow. Uh, but, uh, wow. Um, so, for the people who haven't seen you on stage... How would you describe your performance? What do you do? Um, I'm mainly, I'm a cabaret clown. Um, so I sort of trained in clowning and uh, make a fair bit of my living out of that. But on a cabaret circuit, I'm probably better known for burlesque, which is my puppet burlesque creations, um, which my parents are very proud of. <laughs> So yeah, so that's what I do. Uh, that's so cool. And um, I'm quite into sort of vaudeville style performance as well. So I do um, a, f- a fair few mind style routines, and uh, particularly one called Chipography, which is with a ring of felt. It sounds fantastic, doesn't it? I think it's, um, uh, it sounds mysterious. It's very mysterious. It's a 400 year old art form. Wow. Pe- um, you know, compares who work with me a lot will be so sick of me saying this. It's a 400-year-old art form, um, <laughs> stolen from the French, um, hence chapography. Oh, um, like chapeau, like... Exactly that. Oh. Where you, go, you get a ring of felt and you fold it into different shapes and it makes different hats. And then you do impressions of different people like Napoleon or a nun or... Oh, I see. That's very funny. So I do 25 impressions in a few minutes with music and it's... Seems to be amusing. People book it a lot, which is, which is <laughs> a good sign. Brilliant. It's a good sign, yeah. Yeah, that sounds really brilliant. So, um, as with most performances you see on the cabaret circuit, particularly the more unusual ones, now I would definitely, I think, well, just before we switch the mic on, we were talking about being the bracket of other rather than, <laughs> yeah. like, circus or burlesque or what you think of. Um, definitely quirky. So, clearly... You didn't just wake up one day and be like, haha, chapography, this will be my calling. I will do it for the next 25, 40 years of my life and this will be what I will do. Where did the interest in, in performing come from? It's funny, it's, it's kind of a question you get asked a lot, isn't it, when you're, yeah. out, when you're on tour? And, um, places. Why are you doing that? <laughs> do your parents know? <laughs> um, it, yeah, it's a question you get asked a lot and um, I always find it a really hard one to answer when people say how did you get into it um because i couldn't exactly trace or pinpoint it and and that became really obvious when i went back to my parents for christmas uh, about six years ago six or seven years ago with my other half uh, who could show all sorts of interesting videos because um, there were <laughs> videos bad. of me as a four-year-old dressed as a clown putting on a show for the entire family and no one was allowed to leave the room until I had finished. Um, so, and, and th- these shows were terrible. I, I'm amazed no one stopped me. Uh, but um, I thought, 
that kind of sum, sums it up for me. There was no point where I went, right, I want to be a performer. There's nothing that I saw. You know, when you speak to magicians, a lot of them go, oh, I've got a Paul Daniels magic set, and that sparked off my interest. Mm. Uh, so I now know why I can't pinpoint it. It's because it goes back to before memories started to form. There are videos of me doing exactly what I've gone on to do. <laughs> um, that's amazing. Yeah. So, and... and, and that's kind of flowed through my entire life that I've always had a performing element to what I do. And at various sort of hormonal points of growing up, I've turned my back on it, but it's never lasted for long at all. Um, so when people ask me when, at school, when everyone went, oh, I want to be a fireman or I want to be a nurse or a doctor, um, I always said I wanted to be a clown. And then I sort of <clears throat> hair started growing in weird places and I sort of became a teenager and turned my back on that idea, got a job at a shop and just actually bit by bit got coaxed into performing, doing turns at people's shows because people knew I was a bit outgoing at times and then massively shy at other times. And that grew bizarrely into me performing nearly full time at one point, totally by accident. Wow. And some, a compere then introduced me as a clown and it totally knocked me sideways. I had no idea where that came from. I thought, that's ridiculous, I'm not a clown. And then I studied it, got some lessons, did some training with some clown teachers and realised that actually what I was doing was a clown. And totally coincidentally, I had evolved into my childhood dream career. Yeah. And it, it's kind of quite beautiful. That's amazing. It's oh. like some part of you somewhere was always seeking out the thing that you really wanted to do. Despite the fact I've routinely turned away from it and tried to do other things. It's <laughs> well, just... it's almost like that when, when you say to people, don't think of an elephant and all they can think about is an elephant. It's like, <laughs> don't, don't do clowning. Don't be a clown. Damn it. Damn it, you've ended up as a clown. <laughs> like, like a Jekyll and Hyde. Just <laughs> slightly camper. Um... That would be a really fun act. <laughs> a camp Jekyll and Hyde love to see that so um when you were how old were you when you were sort of performing full-time by accident and not really realizing that what you were doing was clowning um i guess i first started doing regular 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 performing um of this kind at about 19 mm -hmm. i had some performance jobs when i was really quite young i was being i was a paid singer at one point i did this is weird, I know, to go from making money out of my voice to making money out of not talking at all um, <laughs> is, is a slightly strange transition. But I, I did some singing. Um, my sort of group was in the classical charts at one point. That's something I have never told anyone outside of my family. <laughs> we can edit it out if you want. I, I'm looking at the microphone now, I don't, as, as if to sort of do a nod to camera here. It doesn't quite work, does it? Maybe it got slightly louder, I don't know. Technology. Um, but no, we can, we, well, I could edit that out if you want to keep that a secret. I think it's fine. That's fine. <laughs> You've been it? outed. You've yeah. outed yourself. There are, there are worse secrets. Classical charts. So, um, <laughs> so that was regular performance work. Um, yeah. That was ev every day. We worked out that I did more singing than I did school lessons at that period of my life. How did um, you start singing? Did you just start taking singing lessons at school? or? Um, no, I was, um, I was learning to play the piano. Because, you know, that's what kids sometimes do when their parents want them to have respectable lives. Um, <laughs> Look where it leads to <laughs> And as part of that, um, 
for the for the grade test you have to sing a bit. Yes. My piano teacher heard that voice and then went, hmm, you could train that. And that worked absolutely fine, training that voice, until, again, puberty. Uh... That, that comes in and then five years' worth of being paid a decent amount of money to you know, fly around the world and sing goes. Yeah. Um, um... And that's when I turned my back on performing for, for, for quite a while, actually. I've probably about just under a year. That's the longest I've gone not performing. Wow. Um, and then that's, I, that's been like your whole life up until that point. That's a really, really long time to not do it. Yeah. Yeah, percentage of my life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then I met a magician who, uh, well, one of the teachers at my school who taught me magic, which was uh, amazing. And that got me back into performing. And I don't so do fun. magic now, but there's a sort of long convoluted journey of learning from there. He's so performing and, and kind of doing these gigs and obviously ramping up. Um, what made you get... I mean, you said the compare called you a clown. Um, but then what pushed you to actually go to school to study clowning? Well, it sounds like you're doing pretty well without, really. <laughs> um, sounds like you're doing just fine. Well, I didn't go to um, full-time school to study clowning. I, I was going to and then had some advice from people who said it's not for me. Um, for various reasons, which we'll probably get onto, it 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 was being called a clown, um, and then I wanted to research what clown was to find out why I was being called a clown. And as I did that, I thought there's so much about this world that I actually don't understand. All those things I thought of, everything most people think when I tell them I'm a clown for a living, you know those immediate thoughts you have I had to try and dispel those myths both within myself and for other people mm-hmm. so I then you know started learning a bit more about it you know meeting other clowns I was lucky enough to do some work um development work with Angela de Castro who's a mm. clown that I have a lot of time for uh and I, I, I kind of blushing at the moment because um, <laughs> we've kind of become friends since which is lovely to you know see somebody who you put on a pedestal who will tell you when you're being shit mm. and um in a lovely way <laughs> give you advice and help you grow oh it's so um, cool when like the people you really admire who are like teachers turn around and suddenly there's a friend connection you're like oh, is this real <laughs> yeah yeah so uh she's currently um doing a part in the Treasure Island show at the National Theatre, um, which I went to see the other day. She got me some tickets to go and see the previews. Um, and that's fantastic. It's, again, it's wonderful to see someone who's taught you so much actually on stage doing what they've taught you to do. Um, so, yeah, so you asked me how I look, you know, you know what made me want to study. I guess, I guess that's it. It's just... Deciding I want to do something properly. Um, and that kind of still continues, I think. Mm. Um, so I have various sources of income at the moment and I made the decision a couple of months ago to shut those down, to focus on clowning. Because I think unless you're really doing it performance-wise a few hours a day, you don't get the momentum to get yeah. really, really, really good. Um, so I'm, you know, doing intensively. Really that's exactly it. Yeah. So um, 
given the amount of admin that performing takes, you know, the whole getting work yeah. and the admin of running any business, because essentially that's what being a performer is, um, that can take half a day every day. And if you're doing other things and you, you don't have the time to really work on getting better, you're just working on a new act and that's it, which is great. But you have to be pretty sure of the app before you start it, which really yeah. what you want to do is have time to go, I'm going to do something today and it might be crap. Yeah. It was about, oh, I think it was Alex Parsonage actually. And he was saying about how creativity basically gets squelched as soon as you are restricted. Cause you can play. Yeah. You can have those like happy accidents that just like pop up when you're messing around in the skills that you accidentally discover because you're pushing yourself out of your comfort zone and the, the happy accents are brilliant if there are any sort of new performers listening do not be scared of getting it wrong because that is where the best stuff comes from yeah. uh, my solo show that I've just retired because I've been doing it for two years and thought it's time for something new <laughs> um, when I look back at that and I think about the start of the development process very little of it is still in there the, of the you know, first draft that we wrote because as you're workshopping it and rehearsing bits of it new things happen mostly by accident and so what I've ended up with is a show of vaguely amusing accidents which is great uh, and what, one of the routines I have that gets booked still quite a lot I think it's about five or six years old this mm-hmm. routine but people are still booking it uh, it's my Jessica Blue Oat which is a furry blue puppet who is a bit of a jazz diva but has a interesting taste in men as well um when I first did that routine, it was in Bethnal Green Working Men's Club, and I was stood, I was doing two routines back to back. One of them was a puppet routine of mine, Frank Little, which is a little body that strips some motorised nipple tassels <laughs> in my head. And, <laughs> and I was going to do the Jessica Blue routine directly afterwards. So I'm stood in my Jessica Blue costume in this puppet booth with my head out doing the Frank Little act. Um, so no one could see the Jessica costume in this booth. And those lights are really close yeah. when you're on that stage in Bethlehem Green Workman's Club. And it heated up my puppet booth, something chronic. And I was sweating quite a lot. And it sweated through the Velcro and all my clothes fell off. <laughs> I didn't know that wet Velcro doesn't hold as well. Apparently. <laughs> uh, and my clothes were heavy know. with sweat. Oh my God. So I'm stood there naked <laughs> in this puppet booth. My mind going all over the place thinking, what am I going to do? Because I'm still performing this routine with my head and hands out of the booth knowing that I'm just about to be announced Fred Bear sort of fills in for 30 seconds that I told him I needed filling in I just yelled <laughs> keep going <laughs> <laughs> he filled in a little more um, the DJ saw through a gap in the booth what was going on and ran and helped me try to put my clothes back on we got them on as well as I could and I stepped out with my puppet and my arms holding and elbows holding my clothes on my body. <laughs> oh my god. And I've got three minutes of music coming up, and I know a routine I have choreographed down to a T. But I can't do it because I can't so move. Because um, my arms are holding, and my, my arms and my knees pinched together are holding all of my clothes up. <laughs> so I just move my body, my clothes fall off, and the audience cheer. And then I have three minutes of music with this puppet. I then just play with the puppet, walk out into the audience, get the puppet to kiss audience members, steal their wine, do all sorts of weird things. 
And it was brilliant. It was so much better than what I've rehearsed in front of my cats in my living room. Um, all from this really slightly embarrassing you know, mistake. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think you, art needs, and creativity needs mistakes, because actually um, chance can give you so many more ideas yeah. than you know, sitting down with a pen and paper can. That's brilliant. Um, so I've, I've, I've changed it a bit. My clothes stay on for a bit longer now. <laughs> uh, but the, the core tenet of the routine was not what I choreographed. It's what I ended up doing in front of a live audience on that day because I had to. Because you were so unbelievably sweaty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Amazing. That is probably the sexiest story I've ever <laughs> That sweaty Kiki. Mm. <laughs> Sweated up all his clothes. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, not brilliant, obviously, in the moment where you're like, how the hell do I get these back on? Yeah, and it's, it's made me less scared of things going wrong. Mm. Um, more and more and more, I've realised that things going wrong is a blessing. Mm. Yeah, definitely. To a degree, obviously. <laughs> there's there's you know some stuff which you don't want. When you started studying clowning, mm-hmm. going, going back <laughs> to, to that moment where you started to study it, did it open up? new things for you or was it more of a confirmation of what you already knew it did open up new things uh, in that um i was purely cabaret based up until that moment um that's all of my work was in variety style performances now the more i learned about theatrical clowning as opposed to circus clowning um the more I realised actually that that's something that I really want to do. But I was too scared to do it. So I acted in other people's plays for a while to get the kind of feel of theatrical stuff. Um, But I was still too scared to do a full-scale theatrical show myself until finally I signed on the dotted line, booked a venue for a show, The Weatherman, and then I had to do it. Um, And I wouldn't have done that had I not studied it a bit more and realised that no there is an established framework for this happening it's fine uh, people won't think you're insane yeah doing a solo clown show in a theatre it's alright um, <laughs> but doing it well they've been well, not solo but they've been doing that for years like Commedia dell'arte and yeah you know clowning yeah it's such a history in theatre because that's the other thing I've noticed is that you are very very knowledgeable about the history of performance particularly vaudeville it would seem um I just embarrassed you. She shucks you. Well, I like it. I don't. I, I'm not a historian. I know. I don't know everything. I don't want to know everything because one of my favourite things about vaudeville is learning new things. And when you come across an artist you've never seen before, I think if I knew everything about it, I'd be miserable. Mm. <laughs> but uh, I do think people, you know should take time to read some of the history. One of my favourite things about my um, typography routine uh, that we mentioned earlier is the number of times people come up to me and go, that's amazing, that's so innovative, how did you come up with that idea? Despite the fact that the combat has already told them it's a 400 year old routine. And I know I'm showing some signs of ageing, <laughs> but I'm not 400. Uh, I didn't come up with it. I was on the bus coming here and I Saw in the uh, security camera footage just behind my head, my ever-growing bald spot. So, um, 
If you want a youthful looking Kiki, book me while you can. Um, <laughs> where are we going? Oh yeah, the history. And um, so, reading on the only reason I knew about topography as a, as an art form is because I've I've read about it in a history mm. book, you know, about vaudeville. Yeah. So there's so much forgotten in inverted commas stuff that people think, oh, that's a bit old fashioned. People won't, you know, modern audiences won't resonate with that. But I'm performing my shopography routine, what, six times a month at the moment? That's pretty good outing for a routine that's, you know, that old. I think people, as, as long as you update it to a modern style, yeah, people you... still love old vaudeville routines. Yeah, and you'll probably inherently update it anyway because you're coming at it from a modern perspective. So it's yeah. not going to be like a faithful historical recreation because it can't be. And I, d- I don't think it should be either. No. Um, well, it probably wouldn't be as fun. No. <laughs> there was a brilliant show that um, the Burley Q guys did up in Sheffield mm-hmm. um, in a tiny sort of 80-seater all musical theatre there that some eccentric, rich eccentric had built for his wife who wanted to be an actress. Um, and it was... Um, I did it with Shirley Winmore, Crimson Sky, a few others. It was a, a kind of musical reinvented show. And that's so cool. I could have died after that and been happy. That yeah. was... That's exactly what I'd love to see all around the UK at the moment because vaudeville only needs to die if it doesn't reinvent itself. And if it keeps reinventing itself, I think it can, you know, I think it's got a nice, healthy healthy future. Yeah, definitely. So um, on that note, I'm writing a book at the moment, which um, I've not told anyone about yet, actually, publicly. So this is a... <gasps> This is Big reveal. Well, actually, it depends when this goes out. Um, but, but yeah, I'm writing a book about um, vaudeville performance in the past and performers in the cabaret scene now. So looking at cabaret artists who are known on the scene mm. and tracing back not just the influences, but their equivalents as well. So you can ask somebody who are your influences and they may be able to give you a list of people like, you know... Um, the Chuckle Brothers, Mr. Blobby, uh, important people to me. Um, but then there will be sort of performers in the past who have influenced the kind of genre that they're in that they don't even know of. Mm. And that can go back hundreds of years. So you said um, Comedia earlier. Yeah. Um, and lots of clowns use a, a, a physical tick to cue their exit off the stage mm. so you've warmly got the audience on your side you've done a few gags you're just about to leave but instead of bowing you do a signature kind of physical tick it's relatively common now that's from comedia that's mm. a very old technique um but i didn't know that i didn't know that i was just doing it presumably i've seen it somewhere and then i you read it and you go oh, okay <laughs> nothing's sense. new um <laughs> Everything old is new again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm writing a sort of a little, not, not a piece of academic work, but just of interest book on where some of these bits that have shaped modern performance have come from, despite mm. the fact that we, most of us have never heard of them. That's amazing. Oh, I want to oh, read I hope it. So. I hope so. I want to read it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to read it now. Mum, I've sold a copy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You were saying that the reason you didn't want to go to traditional clown school, or not that you didn't want to, but were kind of like warned away a little bit, was because they didn't really suit your outlook. 
So I'm curious to to what that that outlook is now, now that we've gotten to know you a little bit more and, and um, where it all comes from. I'm a disturbingly positive person. <laughs> I am I really try and see the good in everything. Um, mostly because very few people have tried to take advantage of me. <laughs> <laughs> and that also ties into to my clown as well. Have anyone seen um, Kiki's more theatrical work? Um, he his life is, is is actually pretty crap, really. The stuff he has around with him, the stuff he has to deal with. But there's always something tiny that is beautiful and a ray of hope, and that's what he's looking at and what he's interested in. Um, and from some of my friends who have been to these clown schools there's a lot of via negative I don't speak French or Latin or whatever language it is <laughs> uh, there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of you know breaking down mm. basically um, and yes as a clown you need to be challenged um, but I was warned that that's so at odds with how I work that I would probably find it not a conducive way to spend a year or three years yeah. so um, I was better working with um, people in the UK who had a slightly more moderate outlook on clowning, which mm. is what I've essentially done. Um, and off the back of that, I've instead tried to learn from a few different disciplines. Um, if I'm not going down the straight, you know, I will become a master at Lecoq uh, route. So I quite like learning from the world of puppetry. So I did some puppetry lessons. I um, did some physical work with um, a guy called Desmond Jones, who's a brilliant mime artist um, and physical theatre practitioner, or at least was. He's um, retired and closed down his school now. But uh, I thought, yeah, that, that seemed like a much more conducive way of me using my time. And mm. if I knew that they would better suit the kind of clown that I create. You should do that. Mm. Yeah, it's good. And I guess with a school, you can't immediately put things into practice as well. You kind of are stuck in the bubble of the school for however long. Mm. Whereas I guess if you're just taking lessons, you're still performing professionally the whole time and actually getting quite immediate feedback from audiences. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a clown who I won't um, name, but who said to me, um, there's no point going to clown school. Uh, because clowns shouldn't be the domain of the middle class who can afford it. <laughs> and also, which I I thought there was a point there, actually, when I looked at the fees. Uh, <laughs> but that everything you need to learn, and this is, this is the point of the story, not, not what I've just said, everything you need to learn could be um, learned by going onto the beach and trying to perform for children, who will give you just as honest feedback as any clown teacher will about whether or not something's funny. Yeah. And if you do that for three years, you'll come out a pretty decent clown. Yeah. Um, I think street performers, you like, you can tell who's come up through street performing through the fact that you will never, ever see them look like they're at a loss on stage. And they know how to hook your attention very cleverly. That's, you can, there's just something about people who come, who've done years of street performing who know how to get the attention of an audience. Mm -hmm. And it's because they have to to survive and they've been doing it for years and if people don't like what you're doing they can just walk away from the street it's also a great pool for experimenting because if you're doing the same act 
three times a day, say you did that for a month, you can tweak it here, you can tweak it there. If it doesn't work, that's annoying because you might not get as much money for that show. But you know that now and you won't do that again. Mm. And that knowledge is worth so much more than you know the little bit you might have lost by not being quite as sharp. Yeah. So because next time you will be more sharp. So yeah, I think it's 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 the same thing that people say about going to the fringe. You know, performing night in night out at one show mm. for three weeks, you come out at the end of it much better. Yeah. Um, but this is day in day out for life. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so so I think I think you're right there. Yeah. Or when you do a tour and you do the same show and you learn how to like read an audience because certain things go down differently depending on. How many people there are, and what time of day it is, and how everyone's feeling. Weird thing. Audiences are weird. Oh no, no, audiences are lovely, and they <laughs> should come and see us. They're weird, but they're well, they're great. They're great, but they're mysterious. <laughs> That's true. I Partic- find them mysterious. <laughs> particularly at this kind of year, December. It's, yeah. Um, you see two very different sides of it. Um, you've got the the big cabaret showcases, you know, where people want to have a big Christmas show, uh, and they're great. Um, and then the majority of the work at this time of year is Christmas parties, yes. <laughs> which is a very different world. Yes. And it's great because you're performing every night. You're getting, um, you're getting money. Uh, <laughs> but also it's that thing we're saying earlier, like you are refining acts mm. to within an inch of their life because you're stuck in front of a group of people where 95% of them might not have known there was going to be any performance at all. Yeah. And they have no idea what to expect. And really, they just want to get drunk and pull Shelley from accounts. <laughs> you know, that's, that, and that's the kind of audience you're performing to. And you've got to get them on your side. Oh, God. Um, really quickly. Yeah. So uh, people who do a lot of Christmas shows tend to have slightly different Christmas routines because yeah. you need a routine that within a few seconds you've got them. Whereas in a normal cabaret show, you can tease them for a bit longer before you before you show them the big guns, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's the sort of the difference between an audience who are like there to actually watch you and an audience that you have to be like, hey, I'm great, I'm great, please, please pay attention. <laughs> after uh, last year, after three three weeks of doing solid uh, corporate dudes, it was weird to go to a to a club and perform and go ah. Oh, Every person in this room has paid because they want to be here. <laughs> this is amazing. Look how happy all these people are. It's great. <laughs> but yeah, there's something about the vanity of performers that when, when we see when we see the the naysayers, they seem huge. <laughs> like giants of negativity. Mm. Um, but then in typical peaky fashion I'll see a smiling person <laughs> I'm just going to go and sit in your lap for, for the next five minutes <laughs> that, that's the routine now <laughs> stay with the happy person <laughs> <laughs> look how happy she is yeah but I did read this probably in some sort of awful pop psychology publication that the, it takes three positive incidents to make up for a negative incident in your mind. So if you experience something negative, you then have to have three positive experiences to, to, to kind of balance it out, basically. Um, this but is, obviously it probably doesn't apply to you because you are relentlessly positive. Well, this is, this, this is, um, <laughs> this is Kiki confession number three. Oh my of, God. Of this show. Um, I said that I tried to turn my back on performing time and time and time again. 
and I started to train to be a psychologist. Oh, cool. So yeah, that's a world I'm quite familiar with. Yeah. So, so that's, um, that's one of the things I was looking at doing. Mm. Um, so, um, funny enough, my other half is a psychologist. That's how we met. I decided I wasn't emotionally uh, or psychologically stable enough to look after other people. That's a lot of responsibility. It is. It's um, a very mature decision. And well, it's not a very mature decision when your response is, so I'm going to go and take my clothes off with puppets. <laughs> this, is what, this, this is what my student dad is for. We did a show in Yorkshire um, with, um, I think it was Heaven Bridge Burlesque Festival actually, and uh, Frisky was um, comparing. (laughs) She she stood up after my routine and went, Kiki and I go back a long way. We studied at Oxford together. (laughs) And just the crowd just going, what? (laughs) And she went, yep, that's what three years and £10,000 does to you. Is that what you were studying at Oxford, was psychology? Yeah, yeah. Wow. uh, Yeah, that's a different tack altogether. Yeah, although I I did very little studying because I know everyone says that, but um, yeah, it was just performing a lot. There's so much opportunity living so close to London then to sort of come and do things, and that that was at the start of my... That was roughly when I discovered the burlesque and cabaret world um having been doing a lot of you know till that till that time doing a lot of um children's parties <laughs> lots of children's parties weddings i did some street stuff uh i, I used to be an escapologist there we go um, wow <laughs> i've had quite a convoluted route to get to where i am now yeah um, well it's all it's all grist to the mill as they say pretty much pretty yeah. much yeah um it's all performance it's all teaching you something yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I think if anyone's interested in anything that they're not doing at the moment, they should just try it. <laughs> they should just try it. Yeah. I'm learning to tightrope walk at the moment. I'm never going to use that. Yeah. I'm never going to use that. And it will. T- you know, you'll take something from it. My posture is brilliant now compared to <laughs> compared to how it used to be. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I used to get moaned out about my posture by a dance friend of mine all the time, and it's instantly better. Amazing. Um, where were we? Oh yeah, ask apology and children's parties. Yes, about ten years ago, when I got to um, when I first sort of discovered the burlesque world, I saw Fancy Chance. <laughs> it's so good. Um, do her uh, Alice in Wonderland routine. Have you seen it? Yeah. Oh my god, this must have. Oh, this must have been about eleven years ago. Yeah. And it was. I was just in a total other place. Because I'd seen some, some Bolesky stuff before, like Bolesky though. <laughs> and then when I saw this, I just thought, oh, I want to do that. I want to do that. That's brilliant. That is fantastic. That mm. made me feel on top of the moon. It was one of the most inventive things I've ever seen. Um, and so I, within a few weeks, I'd started looking into the world of Bolesk and that was great. And then I sort of discovered that there was a word called Boylesk, which was great. And then that word went out of fashion. So I'm now male Bolesk, which is great. Um, but I, Boylesque I, is back now. Is it back? Yeah, Boylesque is totally back. Oh, I can't keep up with these childlike fads. <laughs> um, what are the kids saying these days? Um, What's on the YouTube? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Facebook. Um, anyway, I, I saw Fancy Chance years later, 
this was back in my drinking days, and just went. <laughs> Bless her, she was she was she just sort of patted me on the head and and moved on politely. Um, but then I got booked with her. Now the first time I got booked with her, I was. Oh my god. Totally gobsmacked, and she was lovely and adorable. And I just stood in the corner going, <laughs> Brilliant! Um, so yeah, cool. and that, that, that was a, a moment, a really nice moment for me to sit down and go, do you know what, I'm not doing too badly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing badly here, it's alright. One of those little milestones you just got to file away in your mental filing cabinet. That'd yeah. I've never told her that. that. <laughs> I, I've never well, now told you've her. told yeah. everyone who listens but, yeah. to this podcast. Like if it wasn't if it wasn't for her, I, yeah, I don't think I'd be in in this part of the performance world. Mm. Yeah. That's amazing! Wow, thank God you saw her. Oh, thank you. You're being too thank kind. <laughs> well, I wouldn't have invited you on to just be mean to you. Like, <laughs> oh, hi, that's welcome a shame. <laughs> welcome to our hour of abusing Kiki, <laughs> who insists he'll stay positive throughout. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> God, you have had a convoluted route. I'm just trying to yeah. get my head around all the things, all the little bits and pieces that you've managed to do over the over the years. And do you have the generation game music? Because if you play that, <laughs> I can give you a quick run through. Um, so, Google it. <laughs> um, in terms of proper performing, forgetting my four-year-old videos. Yeah. Uh, videos as a four-year-old, you know, not yeah. <laughs> Not the videos not from four it, years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, which are slightly better, slightly. Um, <laughs> singing. Yeah. Puberty. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, it magic. It has a lot of good voices, doesn't it? It does, it does, it's it does, yeah. Magic, um, and then <laughs> balloon modelling. I did a lot of balloon modelling. My favourite was a hoover. I'd make a balloon hoover. I know. No kid, no kid asked for a hoover. You spent all your time practising. I was a virgin throughout my teenage years. Because I spent all my time practicing making balloon models. And what do kids ask for? Can I have a dog or can I have a sword? <laughs> um, but no, nobody wants a Hoover. I see no. flowers sometimes. Fla- yeah, yeah. Really flowers. weird looking like... hats. Yes. Yeah. And I feel like children shouldn't be wearing those hats. Mm, helmets. <laughs> um, <laughs> we used to call them. Uh, yes, I know. I know. I know the hat you mean. <laughs> Yeah, I made it. I made Weird. it quite a lot. Um, flower hats, I made quite a lot. Of yeah, those, really, yeah. but on on the whole, a child had to see something before they asked for it. So, yeah, you'd make the first boy, you'd give them a sword. The first girl, you give them a dog. I know that's terrible sexual stereotyping. It's awful. Um, but they'd walk down the streets, and then children would see that and go, "I want that." They wouldn't go, "Oh, I want this." So I want my own thing. No, they want what they'd seen. Yeah. So all of that, you know, time spent learning things wasted. So then balloon modeling. <laughs> I went to a convention um, where I met some magicians and balloon modelers, and there at the convention was an escapologist. Ah. And I went to that, and then from that, com- going to the slightly more circusy side thing, I met sword swallowers, and I tried that for a little bit, and I was not very good. I decided at that point. <laughs> That's like a really dangerous thing to not be good at. Precisely. I think <laughs> you're either a very good sword swallower. Or you're not swords following a doll. So I left. Uh, I decided not to do that. <laughs> um, and even my so when I was doing magic routines, they were more on the comedy side. And then I went into comedy performing. I stopped talking 
because I actually hate the sound of my own voice. I'm really self-conscious, but you wouldn't believe it. This is a long <laughs> podcast with me talking. But in front of an audience... That doesn't mean I'm forcing you to talk to me for an hour. <laughs> I, I, my voice is... It's the most... I hear it's the most middle-class voice in the entire world. Um, and so I was self-conscious about that, so I started... I stopped talking, and I got better audience reactions. And I don't think it was because they were judging my voice... It was my confidence. I was mm. much more confident going out there with them knowing nothing about me and not being able to judge anything about me at all. Mm. Um, and then the silent comedy and clowning evolved from there. Yeah. So that's my route to, to, to where I am now. And then, then there somewhere is an Oxford degree in psychology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do not ask me for help if you see me because I, I remember none of it. <laughs> none of it. Uh, it's all it's all academic as well. It's not necessarily like practical how-to guide. No, no. University. I know I can take a bit out of your brain and know what functionality will no longer be working. <laughs> but that doesn't help you deal with life situations. But hey, you can start up a little lobotomy business on the side. Yeah. If you ever yeah, need yeah. to. And if you're feeling really sad about it, I'll perform my shopography routine to cheer you up. <laughs> Oh, the other thing I want to talk to you about is, ah, yes, I'm excited because I remembered something I wanted to say. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't happen very often. Was making that decision to do a one-man show, to do a theatrical format, because... Clowns have this sort of phrase, which is off to use sometimes too much, uh, about putting yourself in the shit. And it, in life, it's it's sometimes a good thing. Mm. I saw a post once that said, if something scares you, you should probably do it. That's bollocks there are lots of things that scare me heights <laughs> you know um I, i'm i'm scared of I, i'm scared of <laughs> chopping limbs off or things like that I, I don't think you should do it but <laughs> i can see that you know if you're scared of pushing yourself just that little bit further then you probably should do it um because yeah you you learn so much and I had reached a stage where I was, I knew I wanted to perform, but I was in a little bit of a rut. That rut was mostly in my head, but doing the one-man show is great, great for me because it, it taught me a lot more about who my character is. Mm. Um, and Kiki as a clown can do so many more things than I can do as a, as a person. And that, that in itself is fascinating. I can act as things, pretending I'm Kiki acting, that I can't act as myself. Yeah. Um, and when you do a whole hour of something, the the, le- the level of characterization you have to go to is, is different from what you have to do when you're doing a five-minute cabaret routine. So when you're doing a five-minute stage routine, that takes a lot of work to get to. You need decent characterization, but it's all punchy. You've got to communicate to them straight away who you are and get their attention quickly and keep them for five minutes. Now an hour long show is very different. If you do that, you will lose them 15 minutes in. So you have to have so many more layers of who you are and build it up over the hour. Yeah. Now you might think he's gone off on one and he's being a bit arty wanky and preachy, but there's a point to this. And it is that <laughs> when you go back to your cabaret work, that character has developed so much that you do your bam and get to them quite quickly but you're a much more endearing person for them to want to know. And so they will stay with you and you can make mistakes galore and they will love it still um, because your character seems like a real person stood up there. Yeah. So 
it wasn't the best financial decision I ever made to do this one-man show. I think I've just about broken even on the two years that I've been doing it. <laughs> um, but it's made me so much better elsewhere. So, I've, you know, the, the money I've made and the benefit from it has been actually on the cabaret side mm. rather than the, the solo show side. So yeah. um, do it. What was your what was your thought process before you decided you're like I'm just gonna do it I'm gonna I'm gonna throw myself into this where because you said you had a, you knew you wanted to perform but you felt like you were stuck in a rut so was um, it just like ah oh, here's a venue uh, like finger down the yellow pages and nah, I choose that one X put it on I did it within the sort of I decided to do it in a fringe um, I'd done the Edinburgh fringe as a performer for seven years running um i decided not to do the edinburgh fringe because it drove me slightly mental the last time i was there and the thing about fringes is most people lose money and i thought the free fringe wasn't as huge back then but i thought to myself if i'm going to lose money i'd rather lose money closer to home so i did brighton fringe instead Mm. um which is a if if, if anyone's thinking of doing a fringe show brighton and edinburgh are totally different places um not just geographically but <laughs> not just at opposite yeah. ends of the country <laughs> um but um you're you're playing much more to the home crowd at brighton you've got to try and get locals out rather than in edinburgh you're dealing with tourists and people who artists who are there to see shows mm. um so you, you, the marketing approaches that work in edinburgh don't work in brighton it's a very different place They've both got their pros, they've both got their cons, but just don't go in with the same mindset, otherwise you'll be a lot of wasted effort. Speak to people first who have done them both. Um, so that's what I just thought I want to be in a festival, so I've got this nice cocoon of arts around me. Um, and that's what I did, yeah. So just found a theatre, booked it. There is something about fringe festivals that is, I think it's that festival atmosphere where you can, like, people accept that things will be slightly more work in progressy than if they're just on at a theatre yeah. in a non-festival setting, yeah. Yeah. which is which is nice. It gives you a sort of buffer to try things and tell yourself, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that was, that, okay. so that was my thought process. I, um, I did it. I've done it a few times since other places. Most recently, I did it at Mimetic, which is Alexander Parsonage's festival. And... Uh, yeah. I, lots of other people went into making it happen I just mentioned him because he did the podcast yeah. uh, a few weeks back um, and that was that was a, a, a brilliant experience actually um, firstly the space just happened to be perfect for my show um, secondly the um, it was lovely to do it in London I so rarely work in London to be honest I'm, most of my life is spent on trains which coincidentally is why I'm writing the book because I spend on average eight hours a weekend on trains. So, wow. um, so to be able to perform in London and be home, <laughs> to be home before midnight after doing a show was mental. <laughs> Absolutely mental. I loved it. Um, yeah. So, if, so if, cool. if people are thinking of doing the Mimetic Festival next year, I'd, I'd recommend it. I'd recommend Absolutely. it. What was your process with actually making the show, The Weatherman? Making the show. Yeah. Um, post-its, 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 post-its. Um, I tried typing all of my ideas down. Yeah. But I don't think that works very well. I think actually having the physical things in front of you, being able to move it around. 
Yeah. Every idea I had was written on a post-it. And my house looked like that of a serial killer. It was mental. <laughs> Just bits, yeah. You, you know, in, uh, in The Omen, where they... I'm not ruining anything here, because it's quite a predictable film. Um, <laughs> but when you go into Father Brennan's room, and he's got sort of bits plastered all over the place on the walls. Yeah, my house was like that for quite yeah. some time. Um, and each idea went on the post and went up. Went on the post and went up. Um, and then... I worked out which of them actually fit the world I was creating because the weatherman itself is in a very specific place. He's gone to purgatory. It's a very different kind of world and I had to work out what would work within that construct. Mm. Um, And from that, I just stood in a room on my own, made sure nobody else was going to be around for the entire day and played about and just pretended there was stuff around me. Mm -hmm. Um, I've got big bay windows in my tiny little flat so you can see pretty much my entire flat from the road and my neighbours think I'm mental because um, I'm always doing something in that because win- to me the window is where the audience is so I'm quite well, well it is where the audience is yes yeah. so I'm, I'm, I'm quite well known in Ealing uh, particularly when I'm doing a burlesque number um, <laughs> to charge uh well, I got confused. Um, so, so I just, yeah, just workshop things there. And bit by bit, things were torn off the wall and thrown away until I had what was going to remain. Now, some of those are things that were totally new. Some of those were developments of things that I've been performing already. Um, and that created my show. Mm. But the weirdest thing about it was when I first performed it, I hadn't shown it to anyone. And I was stood there with the curtains closed and people filing into the auditorium. And for the first time in years, I felt nervous. Yeah. It's because I was so busy just creating, it hadn't dawned on me to show it to anyone. So I was going to ask, did you get anyone to sort of pop in and... No, no, not at all. Um, Since then, I have. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So it's been rewritten over the two years. But uh, not as much as I thought it would be, actually. But that's a weird feeling when, yeah. you, when you're just thinking, this could be terrible. Funnily enough, I'm not actually that scared of doing things that are terrible because I did a show that was terrible. <laughs> and really awful. And I learned so much from it. It was, it was described by the Times as probably the most excruciating hour of my life. Wow. Was no, it, not it, my life, off the festival. There we go. Well, that's slightly overstated. Was it, Still, was that's it, three weeks. <laughs> was it your show? Was it someone else's show uh, that you happened to be a part of? Um, it was an ensemble show. Um, that is a very nice way was... of not passing the <laughs> to whoever thought up this mental idea. Uh, no, a, a, a lot of the badness was, was, was my fault. Um, <laughs> and I got an email, a really long email afterwards from a burlesque performer uh, who had seen this show. Um... And I wasn't actually doing burlesque in this show, but, mm. you know, she was a performer who had a lot of stage experience and knew what made a good show. Um, and she told me in this long, long email exactly why I was terrible. And people think that that's an awful thing to do, but it term- it totally turned my life around because... Um, I knew this show wasn't good. Mm. Not only could I feel it, I was being told it quite frequently. (laughs) 
uh, by very well respected members of the press. Um, I was a much better promoter, as it seems, because <laughs> I got a lot of uh, interest in the show. Um, and that was wonderful because a lot of people would have been offended by that email or really upset by it. Yeah. But because I'd had such a battering and I knew the show was terrible and I didn't know where to go. Um, it's like, who can you ask to yeah, say, like, please yeah. tell me why this is wrong? Because I was looking around and I was looking at all the people involved and going, all of these people are really talented. There was so much talent in that room. Mm-hmm. And that's been, you know, borne out since the year since because a lot of them have gone on to do very good things and are names that people recognise now. Mm. Um, so nice how you're outing them. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm being very careful what I you say. You're being here. incredibly careful. <laughs> um, so, but so because you know I couldn't see where the weak link was because there wasn't a weak link person there. I couldn't see a way out. And then this email saying this is why you're banned would be useful because I could go right. Okay, now I can fix it. Yeah. Now, now I can do something about it. And I did a show a few months later that got really good reviews. Um, but it's, it, it, I don't, I don't regret it at all. I think it's one of the best things I ever did was doing a show that got panned. Um, cause I think that taught me more than coincidentally getting it right first time would have. Yeah, absolutely. And that seems to be a common trajectory actually having spoken to a few people now, they'll say, I did this thing and it was shit and I got totally lampooned for it. And then the next thing I did was awesome and it got the recognition it deserved and at first I was like oh wow what a coincidence and now I'm like oh actually the bad thing taught them how not to be bad so they then went and did something good yeah that's or, good or the bad thing teaches you how to respond to being bad mm. in the right way um so if something goes wrong if something's not feeling right what you can do about it mm. um and it was funny years later being in a clown lesson and hearing that, hearing that, you know, you can do this, you know, do something, it might be terrible, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. And I'm just going, where were you seven years ago, you <laughs> bastard? Because <laughs> um, that would be really useful advice back then. Yeah. Um, I don't think you reach a level and go, right, I'm brilliant now. <laughs> I really haven't. Um, <laughs> you know, I've got, I've got some great reviews from my last show. Fantastic. I also know some people... Didn't like it as much. Um, but it doesn't mean, you know, that the next... It doesn't mean I can relax and think that the next show will therefore be great. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's something weird about that. Sometimes I find it easier to deal with something bad because I know where to go. Yeah. Um, but also, I don't know about you, but it makes me feel like I don't have to live up to this big expectation I was set up that something has to be good. <laughs> It's, it's like when you read the blurb of a promoter that promoter written about you before you go and do their gig. You go, oh, that's what people have booked to see. I better be good. Or if a compare does it to you right before you go on stage where they're like, the amazing, the mesmerising, the most phenomenal, have you in stitches rolling on the floor, Kiki Lovejoy, like or, right before you go on stage. Or what's happened a couple of times, one of the best performers you'll ever see in your life. Please, welcome to the stage. Kiki Kaboom! <laughs> That's not my name, but you're right. She is one of the best performers you'll ever see in your life. <laughs> For now, though, you have Kiki Lovechild. The other one. 
Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that's like double setting you up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she looks different. <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> put you well, side by side. Maybe there's a resemblance. I, t- I take that as a compliment. I take that as a really big compliment. <laughs> I did consider stated. having a portion of my website where people can submit anonymous, rude comments. <gasps> Just say something negative to Kiki Page. Um, oh, it'd be like kicking a puppy. <laughs> so many sad things happen to him anyway. <laughs> um, but I thought that might be a way to do it. That would be, it would be fun. It would be a fun experiment, though. Yeah, because people don't want to put their name to negative feedback. Well, you say that, sometimes. but if you look at the comment section of any article on the internet, people put their names to some really neat stuff. But that, sometimes that's so big, they still feel anonymous. It's Whereas true. when it's on you know, somebody who's been to see your show and you're a cabaret performer, you know, sometimes, unless it's one of the really big shows, people can be quite awkward about it, yeah. So, mm. um yeah, so maybe I should do that. Maybe I should have the section on my website, Be Rude to Kiki. I feel like more performers should do that, if they're brave enough. If they, I mean, if they want it. That'd be, I mean, either it would be hilarious being like, that person is so mean. <laughs> wow, I'm going to use that insult on someone else. Or it'll be really good, because you'll be like, ah, oh, I never knew. I never knew that was a thing that annoyed people. Or Yeah. I once got um, cast as Jesus, which is... Um, <laughs> Quite a lot to live up to, really. <laughs> uh, yeah. Th- this this was in my speaking days. Yeah. At, um, so this is going back a decade. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> and uh, the review went... I remember it word for word. The review was, His Jesus is uninspiring. Hanging on the cross, he looks flabby and ordinary. He certainly didn't share his bread with the poor. And... Uh, <laughs> I was thinking, I don't know what to do with that information. <laughs> but it's a pretty damning review. <laughs> I had another review that came out the same day that said I was an Elliot Zealous Machiavellian priest. Um, which was wrong anyway, but because <laughs> I wasn't a priest. Um, I was Jesus. So so, so there, there are some things which are, are, are nasty. Um... <laughs> But I wasn't. Really, I wasn't actually offended by that. I was just confused yeah. as to what I was meant to do with this information. Yeah. Because like, I know I'm not bony thin. <laughs> Flabby's a but, bit of a stretch. Well, yeah. So I'm thinking, the author of this must have serious body image issues. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, sometimes it does say more about them than it's about yeah. you, doesn't it? Uh, years later, I saw a poster for a play called Fat Jesus about. <laughs> this very thing and it happened to someone else like, oh my god great I never actually went to see the play I saw the posters but you know most of my experience of art is seeing posters of things and thinking <laughs> oh that's good I'd like to see that oh I can't afford it <laughs> oh I'm working <laughs> yeah, yeah that's the problem with working in performance is all the other performances you really want to see are on at times that you can't see them because you're working unless it's a Monday evening which yes is, uh, which is when I catch up on Miss Marple Oh, no, I'm taking the place of Miss Marple. It's all right. Uh, I will watch Miss Marple when I get home. Okay. <laughs> but do you ever feel like when you're making something or doing something, you feel like it's not that funny, but then it gets a response that people find it wildly hilarious? Does that happen to you at all? Every single thing I do. 
Ah, <laughs> uh, no, no, I'm going to take that back. The first bit of that, every single thing I do, by the time I'm ready to show something to people, I've been working with it for so long, I have no idea whether it's even in the same realm as other people. Yeah. You, by the time you're ready to show it to people, you're thinking, this has developed so much from what I first thought was funny, I can't tell anymore. Most of the time, yes, it comes across the audience laughing much more than you expect them to, um, which is good for a clown. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, and sometimes they laugh at bits that you're not expecting. I think we, we've had a conversation about this before, the two of us. Mm. Um, we have conversations that aren't microphones sometimes. Um, <laughs> no, I carry the microphone with me everywhere <laughs> I go. I've got all those conversations recorded. <laughs> Blackmail. Um, <laughs> Just in case. Just in case. So, uh, insurance. Yeah, so we were talking earlier about um, coming off stage and having no idea what's just happened. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I quite like to film the first time I do an act. I've got sort of little cheap, terrible cameras, so you, you, you can leave them in the corner of a venue and you're not too worried if someone nicks them because they cost 20 quid each. Obviously, you don't want somebody to nick them every time, but, you know. Well, yeah, so you never get to see your act. <laughs> yeah, but it's not like leaving a, you know, £600 video camera or something somewhere. Um, but that's great. Sometimes you watch that back and you think, I had no idea I was doing that. Kiki pulls a lot of faces. Sorry, I talk about myself in the third person. Kiki pulls a lot of faces. A lot of faces at times. Um, I wish I was more of a Buster Keaton stony-faced comedian because I find that hilarious but unfortunately I do some of the Chaplin or Fatty Arbuckle pulling faces uh, I'm now mentioning old silent movie films that <laughs> stars that you know most people have just heard of um, I think everyone's heard of Chaplin yeah, <laughs> yeah everyone's heard of Chaplin I think most people most people who like this podcast I hope will have heard of Buster Keaton okay if not it'll be sad if you haven't go and watch Buster Keaton right go and watch now. Buster Keaton watch his Fatty Arbuckle films as well what they did Fatty Arbuckle is really early so brilliant love it mm. um, but uh, I pull faces like that and I often don't know I'm doing it um, so it's become a tick now I'll pull faces at certain times and sometimes the timing of it is just right that you get a big laugh and I've been on stage and I think, what are all these people on? Why are they laughing <laughs> at my absurd little story about butterflies? I don't understand why these people are enjoying it. <laughs> just... And then you watch back and go, oh, okay, yeah, I can see that bit work. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're right, yeah, all the time you, you do a routine and um, you're surprised at the bits that people latch onto mm. and the bits that they don't. Yeah, uh, but that's great because it gives you something to work with. I got um, once got a random cheer that I wasn't expecting. Um, I did a colour changing thong routine, which was a, a mock of a fan dance mixed with a children's trick of colour changing hanky thing. Yeah, um, and each time the fans went over my pants, they'd change colour. That's so cool. It was uh, quite a painful routine with a harness um, to make it work. Uh, and once my brother came along to see me perform with a girl he was interested in. Um, I'd love to have been there in that room when he asked her out. Do you want to go on a date with me? Oh yeah, thanks. What should we do? Do you want to come see my brother take his clothes off? <laughs> All right, yeah. Fine, whatever. Um, but I told them the exact point in the music to look away because this particular routine um, finished with a fishnet thong. But you saw it for a second, for a glimpse. So you actually you didn't see anything. 
just, and you're trying to work out. Yeah. It's like, what, what, did, so what, what just happened? Yeah. 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 And kind of that added to the naughty titillation feeling because you weren't sure precisely what you'd seen. Unfortunately, performing this routine, I got a bit carried away and I hit the mechanism twice. So the point where I told my brother to look away so we didn't catch a glimpse of anything that brothers shouldn't catch a glimpse of um, came about 30 seconds too early in the routine because I'd hit the mechanism twice and changed a few layers of fabric down. So it was meant to go to the, a sparkly black fabric, which is my penultimate one. And I am the, moved the fans away and I'm dancing around an unexpected cheer, which is how we got into this. Big unexpected cheer. And there's me dancing away going, they love sparkly black fabric. <laughs> they love the sparkles. I had no idea I was hanging out. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. yeah. And so when it came to a bit where I thought I was going to show a glimpse and they didn't react at all, I thought, well, screw you. <laughs> That's a bit rude. Yeah. I do. Wow. Actually, given that experience, losing your costume in the puppet box doesn't seem quite so... Dramatic. Yeah, I have a lot less nudity-related mistakes now because I keep my clothes on most of the time <laughs> these days. Um, in fact, I think those are my two. Um, That's amazing. Ignoring the videos of me when I was a four-year-old, um, where I thought being naked was the best thing anyway. Um, so it has been a common thread throughout your career. <laughs> yeah. Of this isn't going well. I'll take my clothes off. <laughs> I'll get a reaction. Uh, do no, you have embrace your mistakes a favourite vaudeville factoid that you think everyone should know I mean I know there are probably a lot of them a like, favourite love... vaudeville factoid yeah because it's all you know oh, one really... of my favourite ones is one of the ones I posted online recently about break a leg that's one of my favourites too which I love um, which I learned from Buster Keaton actually when he was round at my house once <laughs> in book form Oh. oh, I know. It's his book. I'm excited for a second. <laughs> yeah, when his corpse was. No, 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 it's a different, it's a it's different, different thing. Show. Uh, that's our vaudeville that's our <laughs> panto. Hang on, was that before the microphone went on? No, it was, it was while it was on. Okay, good. good. <laughs> so I remember thinking, like, do I edit that? Do I edit that? <laughs> Brilliant. Um, all right. Yeah, Buster Keaton, um, my favourite vaudeville fan. Um, Buster Keaton tells the story about the origins of the phrase break a leg. At least I hope it was Buster Keaton, because that's what I've told everyone. I've, <laughs> I've read a lot of books about vaudeville. Um, I have to get your reading list. And back, <laughs> back in the day, um, they used to book more performers than they had slots mm -hmm. to turn up. But you wouldn't get paid unless you went on stage. Or quite often, you know, you'd do another job or um, you know, some sweeping to earn a bit of money, whatever. And those who were called on stage, based on how the audience was responding, you know, the um, the head of the show would go, right, okay, we'll bring you on. Much like the sort of mechanicals in Midsummer Night's Dream, which is the way I try to explain it to people, because um, it seems so different from what we do now. <laughs> um, just turn up and hope you get called on. The, um, Can you imagine if we made artists in London do that? <laughs> Turn up, you may or may not get paid. <laughs> yeah, uh, some venues I've turned up and thought, I may or may not get paid for this gig <laughs> when I've met the promoters. But you know, yeah, yeah, it's different. <laughs> um, positive, yes. Uh, so the, um, the, the leg lines were the lines on stage where uh, if you're one side of it, you could be seen. If you're the other side, you couldn't be seen. So the legs were the you know, drapes at the side that would 
something being seen. So break a leg was used by vaudeville performers to mean cross that barrier and go on stage. So when you wish somebody break a leg, you were literally saying, I hope you get to go on stage today. And so that's a way of saying good luck. Apparently wives used to say it to their partners before they went away to to the theatre, you know, break a leg and bring back some money. Um, I know. Now, that was used that way in vaudeville, but it is almost certainly not the actual origins of the phrase. But it's a much better story when I pretend it is. So, um, yeah, that's that's the origins of the phrase. Yeah. yeah. It actually dates back well before, but vaudeville performers have been telling that story for a long time, and I'm not going to change it now. Yeah. <laughs> Some of those Macbeth in the theatre and um, Whistling Backstage. Heard that one? Yeah. That whistling Backstage? Yeah. 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 There's all those tr- little traditions where you have no idea whether it's actually the actual origin of the, of the phrase or the reason why you do a certain superstition, but... Superstitions are funny. It's folklore. I had somebody scream at me once for opening an umbrella indoors, and anyone who has seen me perform a lot will know I use umbrellas in my work. A lot. <laughs> I did a routine about rain. I had 17 umbrellas about a man who um, was just... This is before the weatherman. I've been obsessed with weather-related routines for years. Um, <laughs> but he would just be, he was trying to read a newspaper and umbrellas kept appearing out of everywhere. This was back when I did more magic stuff. Um, and he ended up with 17 umbrellas on stage. And I could just imagine some superstitious person sat in the corner going, Oh my God! <laughs> He's the most unlucky man in the world! <laughs> Should do a routine when you break mirrors on stage. See brilliant. how people react. Just... Yeah. My mirror breaking routine, <laughs> and then buying lottery tickets. <laughs> yeah. So oh, it's been so fun chatting to you about all things vaudevillian and cabaret related. And Thank you. It's getting really, a it's window really, into your brain. With my my tiny brain. <laughs> it's uh, it's nice to be able to talk. <laughs> yeah, you're allowed now. I know it's strange. Yeah, <laughs> it's very strange. So the last question, the double sided question that yeah. I ask. 99% of my podcast <laughs> guests um, is what's the worst thing that's happened to you on stage and what's the best thing that's happened to you on stage? I think the, the worst I felt has been um, when I I was doing um, a, a particular run of Christmas shows, which on the whole were great and the team I was with were fantastic. But we had, um, we had uh, just quite a battering of relatively disinterested faces. And there's, you know, a trapeze artist doing some of the most amazing trapeze stuff I've ever seen. And people looking with pure indifference. Uh, <laughs> that's the worst I've ever felt. Not actually me on stage, me looking at someone else. <laughs> thinking, this is the best thing I've ever seen and you're looking with indifference. Wake oh. up. Um, because I think actually most things will be positively, I'm finding this quite hard. <laughs> Everything's brilliant and terrible <laughs> at the same time. Well, a lot of people do have do say like it was the worst and the best. Yeah. But they have they have one, which I feel like is cheating. <laughs> <laughs> I think actually the worst was in a press launch for something I was booked to do, mm. um, not for my own thing, but for somebody else's. And it was in a nightclub where actually everyone was there for the free press booze, and the setup was such that you know three or four people could see you. One of those three or four people was an idol of mine. I just saw in the audience, I was like, oh, great. Among this hubbub of, of chat, because no one could see the stage. That was, and I, for me, I think one of the worst shows I've done. Um, 
just because I knew that was a good act. But I don't mind doing something um, as long as it's not a you know a, a big gig or something. I not I don't mind doing at a scratch night or something something bad. I don't feel bad anymore when something needs work as long as it's shown in the right place. I wouldn't want mm. to do that as a you know, gig that I've been booked for, just in case any bookers are listening. <laughs> um, but for this, when I knew I knew that that was a good solid routine that I get booked for time and time again, for it to go down badly, that that was, I think, the worst experience for me. I know that's not a good anecdote, not a good story. Oh, but, but that's also to have someone truth. you really respect in the audience as well. And yeah. Just kind of like that just little think, sting in there. Oh, right, I'll never work with you now. Because oh. <laughs> those as first impressions gone. I think the best experience ever has to be um, curtain going down after my first solo show. That's, I mean, that's nothing beats that feeling in the world when you think when you hear and you the audience response and you go for the first time that is actually I can accept it all because when you're on a line up with other people and they're all applauding you think oh they're just all enthusiastic because it's been such a great show they're clapping for everyone and you can awkwardly argue away the compliments I don't do well with compliments mm. of the applause <laughs> by spreading it to other people um but when you're on stage and the curtain goes and you still hear them applauding despite that the curtains closed you have to accept that as your applause and that for me that's what made me think i need to focus more time on this i need to do this as my full-time thing because there is hope there yes. there's you know these people have all paid money I don't know all of them as well, which is great. And, <laughs> and they're being really enthusiastic. Um, so I'll go, I'll, I'll go with that. So um, if people are now, have their curiosity peaked, where can they find you out in the world? Say, say some links. My links? Yeah. Um, I came up with a really exciting website, which is www.kikiloveshow.co.uk. <laughs> and uh, my branding people gave me an email address, which is kiki at kikilovechild.co.uk. Okay. My Facebook is, for now, facebook.com forward slash Kiki Lovechild. Uh, for now. I'm holding on to for dear life. Um, and will change my name by deed poll if need be. Um, and my Twitter is um, Kiki Lovechild. So if you can find any of those, I'm not on anything else. Um, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of YouTube. Mm. Um, for various reasons of what it does to live theatre and the experience so you have to see me live Um, so if you want um, to see me um, either beg your local promoter to book me or come round to my house and we'll have um, some um, apple ties and I'll I'll do a routine or sit outside your window (laughs) on the road (laughs) pull up a chair It'll be like the problems in the park. And then, right. and then post the money through the letterbox. <laughs> this is your ticket. I live in a block in a block of flats, so please write my yeah. name on it as well. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, her and flats A will be going, ooh. <laughs> ooh. A big pile of money. <laughs> I knew my luck would turn. It's all those umbrellas that Kiki keeps opening upstairs. That's <laughs> what comedians call a throwback. <laughs> Oh, it's so great chatting to you. <laughs> Thank you so much. We should probably do this again. I'd love to get um, you and Doc Cotton and Pie the Mime in a room and have a, a Silent People Talking podcast. 
We're actually we... all the same person. <gasps> no, that's not true. <laughs> that's not true. I can't do what they do. Uh... <laughs> I thought there was going to be another big reveal. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, I can change my voice and my shape. <laughs> so that flabby what? and ordinary thing was just for that one show. <laughs> well, you said you were a magician, so... <laughs> Yeah, not an X-Man, not a shapeshifter. <laughs> I did have a blood test recently, and when they phoned up with the results, I was going, X-Man, please be an X-Man, please tell them I'm a mutant. Oh, I was like, oh yeah, signing off. Um, I've been your host, Rosie Cole. You can find me on Facebook, and all my internet handles are all a tiny bit different to each other, just to confuse you. Uh, Facebook.com forward slash Rosie Cole Dancer. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Rosie underscore Cole. You can find me on my website, rosiecole.com. Or, what I really like are emails. Please email me. I like hearing comments from individuals. I like it when you tell me what you like about the podcast, but also what I could be doing better. That's more useful. Um, so email me on rosiecoldancer.gmail.com. I would love to hear your feedback. And audience, as performers, we are literally nothing without you. So have a wonderful evening and thanks for listening.